So I got this road trippers guide to the national park campgrounds. And so they sent me this guide for the least visited national parks in the um, contiguous U.S. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, okay, those are the ones that I want to plan my next trip around. Yeah, there's actually, what's funny, you bring this whole national parks things up because it was my youngest 16th birthday, which makes me feel very old. As it should, because you are. Yeah, and thanks. And one of the things we got him was... uh, not not we my wife got him <laughs> she's way more thoughtful than i am she got him a uh, like a national parks it's kind of like a passport book but it it has all of the really cool like post poster artwork in it as well and and facts and locations and what to look out for there and and so we've been kind of going through where these things are and that's what we're 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 going to do a an impromptu weekend trip to death valley to start to kick off getting stuff in this book because we haven't been there in a few years. And, uh, but, but speaking of the less traveled national parks, I I can't believe how many of these I go through and I'm like, I didn't even know that was a national park, right? Like there's, there's this one on the Eastern side of Nevada that looks, I think it's called Badlands. It looks incredible. And and I'm, I would think that that would be the kind of thing that's on the list that you're talking about. Yeah, actually, uh, my oldest and I, when he graduated high school and we did the the road trip coast to coast with him, that was one of the places that we stopped was Badland, the that the one in Nevada, the that kind of like just random place, not the Badlands in the Dakotas. Right, right. That might I might not have the. Right it, it's it's something you like weird and obscure, and you're just like, wow, this is kind of cool. So yeah, we'll we'll, we'll we may figure it out. Great Basin. So we did go through Valley of Fire, and it was Great Basin is that I'm thinking. So actually, funny enough that that is on the list of the 10 least visited national parks. And uh, and it looks incredible. I mean, I mean it's right on the border of Utah and Nevada, like halfway up the the states. And so I mean it is kind of a, a beautiful pine basin, glacier carved mountains. Kind of kind of like Glacier National Park actually, but so, so very different look than Utah and not something I would expect at all in Nevada. I mean, it, it does kind of look like Tahoe-ish Nevada, but, but still quite different than that. More like Rocky Mountain National Park, um, maybe at a smaller scale, but pretty, pretty incredible looking. It's interesting. So I've been to a few of these on this list and I understand why they are the least visited because they're hard to get to like, um, like tortugas national park in florida guess what that is it's an island oh many many miles <laughs> many many miles off the coast yeah. of florida there's some in alaska like that too it's like you can only get here by plane exactly yeah. so so there's one in california so there's two in california can you guess them if out of curiosity and if of you, the least of the least visited i'm gonna guess one is like lassen and one the other one is um channel islands Ooh, you, good you got one channel islands national park and okay pinnacles pinnacles is is definitely a forgotten and i've never been there myself i and i want to as a rock climber it like it looks like an incredible incredible place so it yeah. looks like i have actually only been to three of these voyagers national park in Minnesota, which is right on the border of 
Well, I say it's on the border, but it's not really because it's separated by Lake Rainy or Rainy Lake in Minnesota, but it's right on the border of Minnesota and Canada. And it's just absolutely beautiful there. Um, it was one of the one of those areas that you you seek out because you're looking for like dark skies, which is yeah, me looking right, for dark right. skies. And that's one. Oh of man, I'm hoping that we got a clear weekend this weekend. I got to look into that. Ooh, I want to see the. Yeah, I mean Death Valley. Talk about dark skies. Exactly. A, I took the telescope out there one time and actually did see the rings of Saturn through it. It was inc- incredible to see that. Just pull the telescope out of the back of the car, prop it up. It's like 20 degrees outside in the you know, <laughs> 10 p.m., 11 p.m., super cold. And it's like, whoa, you can't even believe that you're looking at Saturn and actually able to see the rings through through a pretty normal telescope. So, so I'm just looking. Um, Death Valley, is, I, I know where it's at i'm just you're looking at the dark sky exactly site? i'm looking at the dark skies app and is it like mount whitney nope there it is death valley and you are in it's yeah east of you're in a mount whitney portal two which is a very dark sky area hmm. and if you go northern you know if you go a little bit north of that towards white mountain peak then yeah. you're going to get into a portal one which is dark dark Darker than dark. <laughs> Darker than dark. So that actually sounds awesome. Yeah. Which Yeah, definitely. Basically, Bortle is just a uh, scale of light pollution. And the lower the number, the less light pollution. And uh, interestingly enough, they, they actually get light pollution in Death Valley from Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I could see. Which is. I could see because. What's interesting is it's it's like right up on the edge. So it goes like, because it's so close, you get right now, like, the, as you can imagine, Vegas itself is the highest light pollution at a Bortle 9. And, and then it kind of like tapers off to a Bortle 2 in a very short distance. But I mean, it's like, it definitely, you're like, go from middle scale to, to you drop off the scale a little bit when you get there and it's just depending on where you're at is what you would get. If you like nestle yourself in between the, uh, the peaks, maybe you might block most of it out. Yeah. And there, there, that's the thing. There are mountain ranges in between Las Vegas and death Valley, which death Valley is, I, I believe it in the, the bad water basin. It's the lowest point on the Western hemisphere at 282 feet below sea level, which is crazy because it's, less than a hundred miles away from Mount Whitney, which is the tallest point in the Western hemisphere, <laughs> right at almost 15,000 feet. Uh, so you, they actually have a, a race from Badwater to Whitney, where you go from the lowest point to the highest point via bike, or I guess maybe ultra marathon type stuff. Um, but pretty incredible, pretty incredible ge- geology and geography in, in California. Like the cross section of California is, is absolutely incredible and it's so awesome it really is you guys literally have everything that that sounds awesome we we kind of do have all of the climate zones <laughs> yeah. so there's some insane number of climate zones in in california it's like 14 or something you like have your that, own but. special kind of like just world itself yeah yeah it is a, it's it's an incredible 
like I said, cross section. Like we one day we drove from Sequoia National Park to the coast. And so you start up in the the rocks and the trees and the rivers and Kings Canyon and then you drive through the Central Valley and then you drive over another mountain range and you get to the coast and it's foggy and rainy and you know green and it just like that is an amazing way to see California just to drive across it not north to south but east to west and end up at the coast in Monterey where you know they've one of the deepest trenches and that's why the aquarium is there because of the, the, the variety of sea life that they're able to pull you know and, and showcase there is it's absolutely incredible so yeah and and it's all because of you know these crazy geologic time scale shifts that have happened it's it's incredible unfortunately you're on the early side of the milky way season so you're not going to really get to see a lot of the good like hard i didn't know the, there was a season for the galaxy but that's kind of fun what, to hear about what's it, it is the solar I mean, system i should say yeah um it it, it is because the um you know, just depending on which hemisphere you're in, you don't really, the, the kind of like the alignments. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really get, so it it just shifts the, where the galactic core is. And so, you know, when we're in our winter time, we don't get, we're not aligned with the, the galactic core enough. So you kind of get like the outer arm where it's not as bright, but then when you get closer to the, all, I mean, I'm sure everybody can, picture in their mind's eye like you know all these pictures that they've seen of like the milky way and stuff and the like really really bright kind of like columns of light are the galactic core and so that's what you typically see kind of more starting around early april through i think june july yeah and then and then you you get to see it i mean because i've i've been able to to it all just depends on also how how long you want to sit out and the cold like in maybe like the august september time frame to get some you'll still probably be able to see a lot you have luck like that because dark sky because dark sky too yeah i gotta take the gotta get the camera equipment ready it is a very photogenic desert i think a lot of people think of the california desert as pretty boring because most of the mojave desert is boring but death valley is entirely different now I've, i've seen some of your photographs and they're just it's amazing yeah, and, and lucky for me, my grandfather was a geologist, and we spent a lot of time out there over the years. He spent over 50 years out there. Not He, he didn't spend the summers and the, and the cold winters out there, but he was there in the springs and the falls and for 50 years. And he's responsible for mapping most of the southern end of Death Valley and basically coming up with plate tectonic theory, which is no longer a theory, things like that. And so going out there to visit... I tell you one story. This is, you know, while we're on this tangent, we were out there one time and, you know, my grandfather had had like a land cruiser and it was just the, the truck we'd jump in to go out and explore. And he would take us to places that off the beaten path, nobody would, nobody even knew that these places existed, like opal beds. And you could go dig up opals in the ground. And there's a road cut. If you stop on the side of the hill, just pull off the side of the road and you can find trilobite fossils on the side of the road, you know, if you're lucky. We were out there eating lunch one day and saw some guys off in the distance doing something, and so we drove over there to see what they were up to, 
just random dirt road. Like my grandfather knew where we were, but I didn't know. I was probably 10 or 11 or something like that. And there was these guys out there digging. And it turns out that they were uh, university students from like Sonoma State University or something. And they they spent a lot of time in Death Valley. And they they were out on some just kind of, you know, normal student thing. And they had stopped for lunch one day and they were just on the side of the road, dirt road, eating lunch and saw the little, uh, like a little desert rodent coming out of a hole and the hole was kind of blocked by something. So the student goes over, he picks this thing up and they thought it was like a camel tooth or something. Somebody else was like, that's not a camel tooth. That thing's way too big to be a camel tooth. And so they took it back to the university and figured out what it is. Well, it was a mastodon tooth. Wow. So then they go back out to this spot and they start, you know, digging, archaeological dig. They unearthed a whole mastodon. And when we went out there, we when we were just checking to see what they're doing, like they had, you know, the string, you know, it was very Indiana Jones. They had the, the strings out and they had plotted off these different areas and figured out where things were and they were very carefully excavating a 17 foot long tusk from the ground (laughs) like as a kid you're just like what i mean as anybody you're like what (laughs) right but now that that mastodon is in the shoshone museum which is the town we're going to go visit uh, as one of the places that where we're going to stay it just it's in that it's an exhibit in there they they had taken the whole thing back to the university after they excavated and pieced it together and dated it and did all these things and now they brought it back to where they found it basically the closest town and it's there is a museum there and it's on display and you can read all about it and see it right there it's it's incredible and it just as a kid to like have been a part of that process just as a spectator, it was absolutely incredible and so cool now to like take the kids to the museum and say like I was there when they were digging that thing up. That was that is pretty awesome. So yeah, fun little side story of of being a kid who visits his grandpa in Death Valley. It's everyone. Everyone's like, oh, that that doesn't sound interesting. Well, well let me tell you about the story about the mastodon. <laughs> oh, but it does. <laughs> yeah, so pretty cool, pretty cool place. A lot of cool memories out there. Well, we're definitely going to have to have something. We'll have something to talk about on your uh, return trip. Maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> you have yeah, to find something up. architectural. Well, there is a Neutra house in Shoshone, which is interesting. I was I was doing a little bit of research today because I know the woman who owns Shoshone. It's a town, and she owns like a thousand acres around it. it her her grandfather was a was a, the person who settled the town and had been passed down through the family, and now she's she's done a lot of work to turn it into an ecotourism place and restore some um, what were thought to be extinct wildlife out there there's a, a fish and a, a vole that have been kind of restored and just interesting to read about all that kind of stuff and all the things that actually do happen in a place like that it's, it's pretty incredible so there's a neutra house that their grandparents commissioned richard neutra to design 1955 it was built and and it's just one of those you wouldn't notice it's even there. It's kind of surrounded by some trees and stuff, but I mean, it, it's an incredible house and yeah, been, been there quite a few times. Is it in Dublin Gulch? It is. It's well, it's not in Dublin Gulch. It's near Dublin Gulch. Yeah. 
<laughs> Dublin Gulch are houses that are carved out of the side of ash beds in a canyon, which is in Shoshone. Yeah. And and that's where the prospectors lived when they were out there. You know, it basically is a miner's town. That's how it was started. And and there's a little airstrip and a gas station and a, a bar called the Crow Bar uh, out there. So, yeah, lots of fun history. I'm, I'm zoomed into the map. Oh, I see the uh, Dublin Gulch. These um, carved out uh, houses. Dude. Yeah. yeah, it's it's cool. It's like, you know, very l- forgotten type of a place. But but then there's a a warm spring pool where the, the water's just pouring out the side of the mountain. They diverted it into a swimming pool. It's 85 degrees year round. And, it, and you can go swimming there in the wintertime. And it's wonderful. Really, really, really fun place. How do people not know about these? Like, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting because you go to Death Valley proper, which is enormous. Death Valley is a huge national park. I mean, when we were going out there as I was a kid, it was a national monument. It's since turned into a national park. But it's, people think of the, the things that are right in the middle, which is, used to be called Furnace Creek, and they've renamed it to the Oasis for some reason. I guess people didn't think Furnace Creek was a very destination-y name because it's like, who wants to get in that creek? But it's uh, So now they've renamed it the Oasis. But it's a, it's a date farm in the middle of the national park. That's also where the visitor center is. And, and so you go stay there, and it's a, like a minimum of 300 to probably $800, $900 per night, depending on the the suite that you get and it's a very high priced i won't say necessarily high end i was reading the reviews they weren't that positive and it, it looks cool in photographs for sure I, i've never stayed there myself but it's um i think shoshone itself like being a, a little you know out of the boundary of the park itself it was a miner's town it's definitely not like what people think of as a destination. But we went out to Palm Springs last weekend to visit my parents and we stopped at the Cabazon Dinosaurs and in the kind of the same roadside attraction attraction that Shoshone is, there's a lot of cool stuff there. I mean, it's it's incredible. I do wish more people knew about it. And I think that's kind of the burden of owning a town like that is trying to figure out how to get people to stop there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's got some interesting kind of like characteristics to it. I'm looking at the uh, these kind of like carved out places. It's just you figure out a way to live by necessity. And instead of basic, instead of building a little house out on the desert floor where you're going to basically get. It's a totally exposed. Exactly. You're going to get beaten up by heat and all that other stuff throughout the year. Winds, whatever else. Here they carved into the walls and just created these things. And. You know, in my recent trips to the desert of Saudi Arabia, you know, you see very similar responses to things that they did out of necessity of just like building into the the stone walls rather than, you know, putting the little tents. And, you know, now you do see tents, you know, like Bedouin tents and things like that out there. But, you know, you also see things that are very similar to this. And it's just interesting to think about how like across the globe there's humans are coming up with very similar responses for very similar climates, but are literally on opposite ends of the globe. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually is, seems kind of innate in that way. That is the human ingenuity, the human spirit of 
how am I going to survive here? <laughs> well, I mean, some of the... And thermal mass is yeah. like, once you experience it, because there are actually caves out there, it would be lucky if you found the cave first, but then there aren't that many caves, right? So now you got to replicate that on your own and, and go dig and, and make it for yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it's really cool. There's actually a cave system just south of the town where the, just water had has cut through the ash beds. It's all like volcanic ash. I, a lot of it is probably from even like the Yellowstone caldera and the Mammoth caldera and things like that. I mean, the, the west of the United States does have a lot of volcanic activity. And it, it's just interesting to see how water can carve a path through those when it has nowhere else to go. And now you can go through those caves and like in one end out the other, travel through these water caves and ash beds and do some spelunking. The kids love it. It's, it's awesome. I mean, adults love it too, but you do get dirty. <laughs> Come on. You got, you got to say that that's like one of the coolest words of the English language. And even if it's not of the English language, <laughs> spelunking yeah. is spelunking. just, it's just a cool word. Anyway, that that was uh, that's a, that was a, a fun tangent to go down. I, I'm excited to get out there and just get away from the house for for a couple of days over the weekend. And it is nice that it is within driving distance. That is one of the nice things about Southern California is you can you're within six hours of just about anything if you're willing to to do it. It takes about three three and a half hours to get to the south end of the park, and then it take you know the park is huge. We want to actually get all the way up to what's called the racetrack. Have you ever looked that up? It's these stones in the middle of a dry lake bed that have these paths coming from behind them. And it's like, how did they get there is the question. How did those stones get out in the middle of this dry lake bed? And it looks, it's called the racetrack because you can see the paths that they have traveled to get to where they are. And I I don't know if it's a theory or if I I don't know if it's been proven, but it's like ice, sheets of ice form on the lake bed and it kind of lifts the stones and then there are crazy high winds and it pushes these and they're kind of pushing and, and it leaves this path behind them as they slowly move across the desert. Kind of like how a snail leaves a track, right? Like that's what you see and it's called the racetrack and you can go out there and and see these stones and it's, it's a pretty incredible sight to see. Not too many people get out there. It's pretty remote. So I think like from the South end, it's probably another three hour drive in the park to get to that part. So it's a, it covers a lot of area to put a link to the racetrack in the show notes. Looking at it right now and it just looks crazy cool. Yeah. Yeah. So get off that beaten path and, you know, some new experiences. Like I said, all, all my years I've never been to the racetrack. So that's, that's our goal this time is to get to the racetrack. Well, speaking of new experiences, now it's not new for you, but it was new for the, the, students you went and talked to you went and talked to an architectural studio yeah pro practice class (laughs) somebody 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 tweeted at me because i said i was going to go i was excited to do it and uh somebody said that that is one of the most uh i'm actually going to find their pro practice is an under prioritized class in school we had one semester across undergrad and grad school. It should have been one semester per year. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 I totally agree with them. I mean, we, I think, had pro practice one, pro practice two. Um, so we had two for undergrad. 
but it mm-hmm. was still something that with hindsight looking at what we you know what we studied versus what we are living now yeah i definitely wish that we disproportionate yeah (laughs) and 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 really to be quite honest with you i mean i think that back then and and it's it seems to be changing now because you know you're a good example that bringing more and more people you know more and more practitioners in to really talk to the the classes having people come in in and I know that this is going to sound incredibly boring, but have people come in and talk about contracts and why contracts are important and stuff. We, we blushed barely on contracts and it was just, it was just something that wasn't fully concentrated on. But if you think about it, when you were studying for your ARE, you know, I don't know about you, but like I used those, the lecture series and I can't, I'm blanking on the legal firm that had put these out, but it was a, you know, a firm that does, you know, construction law. And they talked about, I remember that all of the different AIA contracts and why, but gave examples and stuff. And and so it was almost like, it was almost like a scared straight type program for architects of like, you better pay attention to your contract because. That was my pro practice class. It was, it was all about instilling fear in the minds of every student who passed through the door. Awesome. I want to hear about it then. I want to hear. Tell me about this fear. It was also a class that I think a lot of people slept through because they were all consumed by Design Studio. That is also working against the pro practice. I, our pro practice class was taught by a practicing professor. So it wasn't like an academic leading that class, which was appropriate. And and every day, and it was, it was too, we had several quarters of the class, but every day, the one that I'm thinking, the professor that we had that I'm thinking about, he had the contracts. He would bring them in, print it out on eight and a half by 11, and he would ask a question. And for every answer, he would hold up, and here's your request for additional services for that. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, it it was basically contracts 101, right? Like you're talking about and then another professor was was the one I was referring to a minute ago who was just would tell he he his name was Dick Chalinsky. He worked with Charles Moore, who's a very famous architect, and Charles Moore is also um, an alumni of our school. And they were in practice together for for probably decades and had seen it all kind of a thing. And he would bring up day after day about how architects get sued for this and for this and for this and for this. And so that was what I meant by like getting, putting the fear into everybody who passed into the door because you knew it was going to be like that kind of a talk again that day. And it was just like, why, why are we getting into this profession? This was, <laughs> it was very much like, he's like, it wasn't, it's not when this happened or not if this happens, it's when this happens. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because you it's uh, you had said something and it just kind of made me think about the the importance we place on studio and design studio and making sure that like that's our primary focus. When right. if we think about true practice, I mean, designing is a a focus and it is something that's carried on throughout the entire process, but it is a process that's intermixed with the design of contracts, the design of, you know, construction documents, the design of specifications, the design of all of these different items that design really does touch that we spend less time on 
And it really is something that is in a way is equally as important or in many cases more important than the understanding of good design. Cause it, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, you'll learn that that's OJT. You know, you're going to learn how to do that. I would almost say that it, it would be the opposite. It's like, you can learn design, get your basics, get that kind of like the sensibility of questioning things and, and like that critical thinking, but then let the schools teach like all of the stuff that the practices need, you know, kind of like early on in, in so and then learn as you go. How many times, like, I'll give you a great example, working on a, on a project that has eight different buildings with so many different building types, natatorium, gymnasium, academic buildings, auditorium. Well, auditorium is, is uh, cheapening out the theater, admin buildings, you know, dining halls, ex- exhibition halls, you know, all these other things. And so in almost, well, not almost no one, no one except for some of the senior folks on the project have ever done any of these buildings before. So that's when you learn how to do the design instead of like, oh yeah, I know how to design a this, but I don't know how to document it. Like, oh, I know how to document it. Let me learn how to like design the thing. I don't know. When you talked about the this this notion of kind of like everybody looked in at dread with pro practice as like, Oh, why do we have to learn this? You know, we don't really care about this stuff. It was like, that is actually the stuff you really should care about the most. That is the CYA. I think schools have this tug of war internally that goes on because there is pressure from the outside to train architects for the profession. And the tug of war happens when, Schools are trying to attract people to come to school there. Those are not the sexy classes. So it's that's one of the reasons it's all about design is because those are the things that get students to come to school there versus the things that actually get you ready for the profession. This is it's there is no balance there to speak of. When when the truth of the matter is like if you go to another program like medical or law like they train you to be a law professional. They train you to, you know, you, you do these internships as a doctor, right? That is part of your education. It's not in addition to your education. It is kind of interesting to think about it that way where it's not, not very balanced to prepare you for the work. It is very much a, we're going to take care of this part, which is the design part which is quote unquote, the fun part, which we've talked about on the show before, but, but in, in our, nobody, nobody actually thinks architecture school is fun. Then when you, when you get out there, that the business that the, I guess the agreement, even though it's not agreed to probably by anybody is that the businesses will teach that what they need to happen in those parts. And you'll learn that by studying for your exams. <laughs> so you're on your own again, right? <laughs> You're on your own to figure all that stuff out. I, that that was really actually one of the my big messages at lecturing at this pro practice class was, and this was an adaptation of the talk that we gave to the AIAS a couple of weeks ago, I guess a month ago, which was like architecture schools are designed as if you are going to be on your own for all time. How to solve the problems yourself, how to present the problems, how to present the answers yourself, 
how to do all the, you know, be completely self-sufficient. But when the fact is, is that no project, every single project is a team sport. Always. A hundred percent. Like you can't know everything about everything. And, and so I put up one of my slides after I show the, the single person wandering in the desert as, as like, this is what schools are training you like to be completely self-sufficient and you can't rely on anybody else. Then there is the, the next slide, which is when you go to Google and you are confronted with the search box, that is, that is how we are trained to answer every single new problem that comes across our desk. Start, it, start with Google. When the answer actually is, talk to other people who have done it before. Talk to other people who know more about that thing than you will ever know about that thing. In, in the examples that I use, it's like, okay, there's, and, and Cherie said it, and we talked about it in the last episode, maximize your product, not the last episode, but one of our previous episodes, ta- maximize your product representatives. No one will ever know more about building products that is 100% of what buildings are made out of than the people who make those things. You shouldn't even try. Stop the solo journey now and max like start building your network of people so that when you are encountered with those problems, you have this reliable source of people to go to and get the answers way faster than you can find those answers in what I call the black hole of Google. So that that was like my <laughs> my roundabout way of saying like because I, I, it's funny, like this class was divided into two lectures. And one of the lectures is one of my colleagues, previous colleagues at HMC, who is in the risk management department and who does the contracts. So, and he, he does a great lecture on basically taking students through an amalgamation of problems that have come up on real projects. And they don't all, they didn't all come up on one project, but it's kind of presented that way. And and he does this great Q and A at the end, which is like what what should they have done better here? Did you see this coming? Things like that. What what tipped you off that this was probably going to turn into a problem? And and so then I get to follow up, and and I guess the thinking by from the the dean of the school who invited me to come speak was thinking was like I'm going to bring him back up after he deflated all, <laughs> all of their re, the reality of the practice which was very much my experience when I was in pro practice class as well. And, and so, you know, I, I definitely am optimistic about what the next generation of architects can do for this profession to make it their own. But again, to rely on others to use the best information that does exist so that they don't have to feel like they're alone solving all these problems. I do feel like one of the biggest problems we have in this profession is that we are taught to figure everything out ourselves. And I think people who see through that and actually do build these personal networks go way farther, way faster than we could have ever done on our own because they are relying on the expertise that does exist out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny you actually said the the when you bring in practitioners and they kind of dispel some of the, the myths of the, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound bad, but the joy of architecture, you know, and they talk about like some of the realities and, and the people are like, man, do I really want to do this? And then the professor's like, whoa, 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 let me lift you back up. 
I've had that happen to me so many times where where I go off on this tangent and I'm like in, invited to a, a, a studio. Like I say, I've, I've been in a, uh, invited to a couple of studios at Auburn and by the same professor. And he knows, I, I think he knows what he's getting into when he hasn't invited me that, you know, Cormac's going to bring a dose of reality. <laughs> And then he's just like, and then when I bring the dose reality, it's just like, maybe you could have taped, you know, you could have like throttled back some of that reality a little bit. Couldn't you have held back a little bit? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, I think the students know what they're getting into. I mean, it would be easy to have a, have a lecture that's like, oh man, watch out for this million item list of things that's going to happen in the profession. Yeah, that that would be easy to be negative <laughs> about. But then there there is, and I don't want to hold back, but I, I do think that that students nowadays probably know more than what we did when we went to school about what the profession's really like because of the existence of instant communication and social networking and YouTube and yeah, access to information. Right, so they're not going in bl- as blindly, I think, as maybe we did. Oh, I I had no clue of. I mean. I was uh I always um tell everybody that my um choices were stuck in the A's. I went into the army, architecture, I had dabbled around with archaeology and art. That's it. I I I I couldn't flip past that. So I, I didn't know what I was getting into and so <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I feel similarly and I feel like I've been s- successful in my career in spite of that fact, but the and I think maybe architecture has survived in spite of its own kind of problems. It's interesting to think about it that way, for sure. Yeah, so the the overall message was really about kind of building a network of people and not not just relying on the Googles of, you know, that do display and get you to information, but it's not necessarily the right information. It's not necessarily contextual to what you're looking for. It's not necessarily current, all of these issues um, that, that data the realities of working with data. Whereas if you actually engage real people, I think you, you can get to the answer a lot faster. Well, I mean, and think about this, think about how some of our networks have probably grown. You know, think about how many people you still stay connected to or with from university, you know, that are part of like your, your network of, of, of people that you go to for advice, for questions, for whatever. I mean, the entree architects a great you know like example of this net you know of resource for networking because somebody will be like so that sole practitioner sitting at their computer at home thinking that they're all by themselves and thinking that they have to go at it on their own when you know they just reach out to other folks within that network and ask questions and then you get a sometimes you get more information than you were really hoping for but you at least get information and, and you realize that you're not alone, that you actually are part of a network, that you actually are part of the, com- the community. The yeah. community. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That That is a great example of what I'm talking about, especially if you're going to be doing a project you've never done before. Somebody has always done it before. I think that's the the thing that we have to come to realize early in our career is that Surely somebody has done this before and you just got to try to figure out who that is. And so coming up with that people network is, is important to, to cultivate early. So I, I, 
I did get some comments afterwards. It it was an inspiring talk. I didn't show any architecture. I didn't show any projects or anything like that. It was it was more of the the messages about people. And I said, you guys have this community right here in this room, but it, it on some levels it's also an echo chamber. You have very similar experience. You're similar age. You're all in the same year of school together. They're all in their last year of school. And you're all about to embark on this unknown journey. And some of you are going to go in different directions, but like there's, you guys are going to stay in touch. You have to get beyond this bubble starting as soon as possible in your career with creating these connections. So it's one of the things we're trying to do at, at Tech is to create people networks. And so giving those students the exposure within the professional network is something we're also doing early in our in our platform so that students get that exposure so that they can start to build professional industry-based networks uh, early. Well, it's good stuff. I think overall it's it's a it is a positive message. I'm really optimistic about that the whole notion of creating people networks. I think it's something that has been one of the most valuable pieces of my career and uh, so I can point at me and say, look, it's worked for me, right? <laughs> I know it's worked for you too. Like we we started this podcast <laughs> As, 10 years ago and that's a, it's a great example of of creating something that brings people together in, you know, different ways than an online forum would or in different ways than like the Entree Architect community has by sharing our knowledge of what we've experienced in this profession, it's created other crazy opportunities that we would have never thought of. And I think that is also the power of creating a person, a people network is, is just, if people think of you, that's a good thing because you can always say no, but there's going to be opportunities that come up that you would have never expected just because of the people who, you know, so anyway, I'm looking forward to engaging with them more. And I think, uh, you know, the students are the next generation of this profession. And I I think that they have more power than they think they do. So um, I'm excited for them. So do you believe that they are the future? I believe that children are the future. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can't get that that tune out of my head. You're welcome. Everyone who's listening. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Talk to you soon.